From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Throughout history, African-American alcohol consumption has been portrayed as derelict, writes food journalist and historian Tony Tipton Martin. She spent two decades buying and studying recipe collections for her award-winning book, The Jemima Code, and its follow-up, Jubilee. In her latest work, Tony turns to African-American mixology, ensuring that those behind tradition and innovation are not forgotten. Hi, Tony. Hi. I love this book. It has so much exuberance. I had so much fun working on this book. Oh, I'm sure you can feel it. Um, Can you share your early memories of your parents' hospitality and your father's makeshift bar? Yeah, you know, my family was part of that generation where backyard barbecues and entertaining and picnics, um, that was just classic summer activities. Plus my family, uh, my parents were club members, so they often had friends over for parties. And my mom used to love to set up this lavish buffet in our basement. And my dad built himself a really cool um, bar. Initially, that bar um, was made from my grandmother's hideaway bed. It was very cool. It was this, I can just remember it, I was only about six years old. But it had Asian etching on the outside of it. And it basically looked like a box that had a fold-out twin bed inside. But when you opened it, the top doors above the bed, which is a kind of peculiar combination when you think about it, but the top of it was a bar. And she kept her glassware in there. Um, And this amazing little Popeye decanter that I was in love with as a child. And so when they kind of outgrew that, um, maybe it was falling apart, I'm not exactly sure, but my dad built his own bar and began collecting different things from around the country when they would travel. Can you talk about the mixed messaging that surrounds Black people and booze? Yeah, you know, it's been really interesting, and I'm still able to see the pervasiveness of this today. For the longest time, uh, perhaps since freedom, African Americans were portrayed in literature, in television, in film, like in every piece of pop culture. We were portrayed as people who were, the men were going to be dangerous and violent if they were caught drinking, and the women who drank were considered loose and wild. Um, And those kind of stereotypes percolate all throughout our history, up to and including the years preceding Prohibition, when it's not really widely known, or at least it wasn't known to me, that so much of the argument on behalf of temperance was about the danger of Black men. Wow. But many African Americans were also at the same time trying to establish themselves as um, moderate, as learned, as reliable, like all of the things that were being said about my ancestors, they were working diligently, many of them, to dispel those mythologies. And so we have this fraught relationship with public alcohol consumption. Much of early African-American libation is rooted in innovation and creativity due to circumstance. What is the role of women and, and booze in the antebellum years? Well, what's really interesting about that is when we think about making cider or beer, for example, those are two crafts that fall squarely in the realm of a woman's uh, work. 
you're cooking basically, making a mash, overheat, straining it, and then applying various other processes to distill out the solids and arrive at the clearest liquid that one can find. And so African-American women have a known history that can be traced back to West Africa of making beer and also making palm wine. And both of those were libations that might be used ceremonially during funerary experiences. They could be part of hospitality rituals where a a host would make sure that you were served something um, light before the meal. These traditions can be traced all the way back to West Africa. And what is unfortunate, um, and another little fact that surprised me, was how much enslavement really kind of corrupted that whole process because what African-Americans were doing um, in the motherland became, I don't know, maybe a source of kind of a salve for the horrors of what they were going through. And the planters would use the corn whiskeys and other things that they were making to try to soothe the pain by making sure that the enslaved had distilled beverages to drink. It's kind of a complicated story to tell. So complicated. Who were the earliest notable mixologists that you encountered in your research? And what was the first cookbook that had tested recipes for cocktails? Well, what's interesting about that is that most everyone refers to Tom Bullock, uh, who published The Ideal Bartender in 1917. And that is a complete volume full of classic recipes that everyone will recognize uh, if you have any interest in bar culture at all. And what I learned from my friend Robert Simonson was that there was a second mixologist to publish two years later, and his name was Julian Anderson. And his collection is very similar to Tom's in that it's classic bartender speak, right? He's got these recipes with these peculiar, some of them are funny titles, even complete with body part names. And those are the two guys that get all of the attention. But to my great surprise, even before them, there was a woman who published a cookbook of recipes and she's the first that I've encountered to have a full chapter on beverages and uh, mixology. And her name is Atheline Payton. She wrote a book called The Paytonia Cookbook. It's very rare. Few people know about it. Um, I think there's only two copies of it that are known. One is at the University of Kentucky and one is with the National Park Service. And they were gracious enough to share um, the pages of it with me because of its fragility. But it's so fun. It's so fun to know that a woman uh, got there first and she has recipes for rum punch and cherry cordials and all of the kinds of beverages that we've been talking about so far. Let's talk about batch cocktails for a minute, which are being seen so much more often now and seem to have always been a specialty of caterers. Do you have a favorite batch or punch bowl beverage that you would suggest for the holidays? Um, well, rum punch is always a favorite because it's um, it, it's obviously um, a familiar term. Everybody kind of knows rum punch if they've traveled in the Caribbean. But one of my favorite stories in the book revolves around the claret punch. 
And um, when my son, who is a bartender and was helping me with this recipe, uh, and I put our head together about batching up some of these recipes that initially were single serving drinks in one of or another of the cookbooks, um, we discovered in making this by coincidence at Thanksgiving that it was delightful served prior to the Thanksgiving meal. It's got an apricot brandy. There's some tangerine liqueur in it. And it's really festive um, because of the sliced fruit that floats on top. So that would have to be one of my favorites. I love that. So let's, let's talk about eggnog for a minute. What are some of the different versions of it that you found in your research? Yeah, so this book has several versions of eggnog. Um, and we the recipe for it, interestingly, is called bowl of eggnog because that's the term that Tom used to describe it. Um, but multiple uh, mixologists had versions of it. There's this really cool thing called a Tom and Jerry cocktail. And it was actually made with a batter that you made a thick base of creamed eggs and sugar um, and then diluted that with the spirits. It's sort of the thing that we derive eggnog from, um, the same kind of a foundation that has spirits layered on. But in eggnog, you tend to use cold milk rather than this paste that's mixed with boiling water. I love to talk about the Puerto Rican version of this called Coquito. Uh, and it so gets good. some tropical flavor. Yeah, it gets tropical flavor from coconut and sweetened condensed milk. I love that. And I have to ask you about the origins of the term juke joints. Where did the phrase come from? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. You know, when you're on the ground in the communities, like in the Mississippi Delta, um, you hear the words juke joints a lot, but you also hear um, other terms that were associated with gatherings in the woods, off the beaten path, primarily in agricultural communities where people had been working hard all week. And then on the weekend, they just wanted to let their hair down outside of the gaze of the the sharecropping landowner. Um, And some of those places um, were known to be a little bit rowdy, but others were similar to cafes where women would operate parts of operate rooms from their homes where they would make really great food, mix up some moonshine, and they could serve the people in their community. There are multiple references to how we arrive at that name. Um, There are theories. One of them is that it's connected to a West African term, uh, juke, which can mean, you know, some disparaging things like troublemaking, that center on troublemaking. Um, But one of the most common um, accepted answers is that they're tied to the juke box. And that over time, when when live music was no longer happening in these spaces, um, the people who were partying there uh, began to listen to music played in a box on records. And thus the term juke joint became more popular. I would love it if you could leave us with uh, some contemporary mixologists that you have your eye on. 
Well, I have I am known for saying that asking me to name anybody is like asking uh, in whatever subject is like asking a mom to name her favorite child. So I'm always reluctant to do that. But I will tell you that I've gone to great lengths in this book to cite every current African American uh, who has published recipes, who has reclaimed this legacy for themselves and for others. And I've adapted some of their recipes as an homage and an honor to them for what they've achieved in their own worlds. And so my favorites are there. You'll be able to see who um, I lean on and who I speak to. I will take one little point of personal privilege and say, obviously, that Tiffany Barrier, who has been a mixology mentor to me, is a cherished, cherished part of this process for me. She's known as the drinking coach, and you can follow her. Anyone can follow her online. She is involved with the Tales of the Cocktail. Um, She's award-winning, and she recently received an honor in my name from the IACP, the International Association of Culinary Professionals. But she is not currently on staff at a bar. Well, thank you so much, Tony. This was really fun. And once again, another just engaging and fascinating book. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was award-winning food and nutrition journalist, Tony Tipton-Martin. She serves as editor-in-chief of Cook's Country. Her latest work is Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice, a cocktail recipe book. We've got a recipe for her claret punch on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, cocktail ice like you've never seen it before. I want to introduce you to Disco Cubes. That's next. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Good Food. It was just another day of doom scrolling when an image of a hand in shadow holding a tomato gave me pause. This wasn't an heirloom nightshade plucked from the vine. This tomato was made of ice. I clicked on the profile of Disco Cubes and found a garden suspended in frozen water, the work of Leslie Kirchhoff. Hi, Leslie. Hi. Tell us more about yourself and how your different interests and talents spawned Disco Cubes. Yeah, so I've always called Disco Cubes a project, which I think is key because I wanted to create something that could grow and change with me as my interests changed. Um, But photography and video have always been my primary jobs, and I've also been a DJ for over a decade now. So through Disco Cubes, I work with brands in a variety of ways, from ice cube orders to cocktail shoots to playlists and sound curation. And every day is totally different, which I love. You're a Wisconsin native. So did cold Midwest winters influence you at all? Definitely. Um, Growing up in Wisconsin, I feel like ice was all around very much of the year. And I just love nature. Nature is so incredible. And ice has such fascinating properties from being a frozen lake to coating the nature in interesting ways to icicles to everything. It's just a really fascinating part of nature. And it really does have some unique characteristics where ice is one of the only 
things that gets less dense as it freezes, which is lucky because that's how lakes work. Otherwise, they would freeze solid and freeze um, everything inside it and never be able to get unfrozen. But so I have a really vivid memory of being a kid and standing on a frozen lake and seeing a fish suspended in the ice below me and just pressing my nose down against the lake and wondering how it got there and what would happen to it afterward and There's just something so mesmerizing about something being suspended in the middle of a clear block of ice. And I think that's probably one of the kind of points that got me thinking about that and that just really inspired Disco Cubes as a whole because I think some of the magic of Disco Cubes is that we do suspend things in the very center and everyone's first question is, how did it get like that? What happens after? How long does it take to get out? And just being really mesmerized by the whole thing. So you make bespoke cubes for clients. It takes three days to complete an order What is the process? Well, it is a top secret process that I invented. So I can't tell you too much about it, but I can tell you that we use directional freezing, which is essentially a process of making ice where you freeze it from only one direction. So you're almost replicating a lake within the freezer. And so you've got insulated sides on all of the sides except one. And uh, then when it freezes from one direction on a molecular level, it pushes all of the impurities down. And so when you take it out at the right point, everything is frozen and everything is perfectly clear and all the impurities are down below your ice cube. And so that is the basis for our technique. And then I modified some molds that are out there and got really experimental with silicone and different techniques to make my ideal mold. So it is, yeah, that's that's about as much as I can tell without giving away the secrets. I understand. Um, what are your most popular cubes that people order? It's a mix. My favorite cubes that have become a lot more popular lately are just the pure garden botanical cubes that have little buds, little blossoms, um, little herbs suspended in the very center. It's almost like tiny, tiny floral arrangements inside. A lot of the flowers are from my garden in Mount Washington. And so it's really nice because I can clip them at specific times. Whereas if you would be sourcing flowers from a flower farm, they would probably give you a lot of uniform flowers. And this way, since I'm growing them, I can snip them when it's a barely open flower. Like I grow a lot of geraniums and I love what they look like when they're tiny buds that aren't quite open yet. And then I also, of course, love what they look like as giant three-dimensional flowers that take up almost the whole cube. And so I think one of the kind of magic parts is having each cube be totally different. And so when guests receive a cube, almost always the first thing they'll do is turn to the person next to them and compare what their cube has inside of it. And then, of course, brands love it when we can put their logo inside. So we can die cut little paper logos and nestle it among the flowers and having little botanicals kind of in front of and behind and and within the logos is really a hit and is really unlike anything that anyone else can do. Wow. And where do you make these? I would imagine that uh, clients who order um, the ice cubes must be local. 
Yes, we only offer cubes to LA now. So we have a studio in Lincoln Heights where we make all the cubes and we also do all of our photo shoots and video shoots there. And uh, yeah, we've got about 30 freezers in there and we make all of them in our little ice room. When you Instagrammed that one tomato made of ice, were you surprised by the reaction? I was surprised, but at the same time, I knew it was something special. So I was hoping for a great reaction, but I was pretty blown away at how many corners of the internet it got to and how inspired it made people, which is also another part that I love about Disco Cubes. It really just inspires people. I got so many messages of people being excited to try their hand at silicone mold making and just with so many questions, but yeah, it really it really sparked something with a lot of people. And if people order them and then go pick them up, what kind of instructions do they have to follow to get them home intact and then keep them beautiful until they're ready to serve? You know, we actually prefer to hand deliver all of our orders. We've got some really fun little vintage looking coolers that we keep in our freezer at negative 20 degrees so they're safe for the road. But otherwise we do have insulated packaging and we have pretty specific instructions on how to treat them because one of the main problems with ice is that it will crack when you pour a liquid on it. And usually that's like the familiar sound of cracking ice is something that we're also used to, but we're also not used to needing to keep the clarity of the ice. So that brings in a technique called tempering. And so when you're working with clear ice, you have to let it sit outside of the freezer for a few minutes before you can pour anything on it. And it's almost like letting ice cream soften before you use it. But it just brings the surface temperature up to room temperature. And then you can pour the drink on it and it'll remain perfectly clear and it'll stay solid and clear for the whole, whole drink. Thank you so much, Leslie. Um, We all really think your work is just really fun. Thank you so much. That was Ice Cube innovator, DJ, and artist, Leslie Kirchhoff, the talent behind Disco Cubes. Find a recipe for one of her 70s-inspired cocktails on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. And do check out her creations on Instagram. She's at Disco Cubes. Sure, I love the meticulous curation of a fancy ice cube, but what happened to just having people over? Not entertaining writ large, but just getting together with friends, which usually involves food and turns into a party anyway. Author and memoirist Amy Thielen loves company, something we really took for granted prior to 2020. And with the holidays on the horizon, Amy has some ideas about how to make enjoying the company of others a less fraught endeavor. Hi, Amy. Hi, Evan. I really love this book. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Even though the photographs make me incredibly jealous, I must say. Yeah? Why is that? <laughs> the context of so much of it is, is very beautiful. You left your hometown to cook in some of New York's finest restaurants, do people who live in remote areas, do you think, make better hosts? Oh, I don't know about that. Um, 
where I'm from here in northern Minnesota, though, I think it's really common to have people over rather than meet up in a public place like a restaurant. Why do you think that is? We do a lot of in-house entertaining because, well, we only have like five or six restaurants (laughs) in the vicinity that are, you know, you can drive to within 20, 25 minutes. And so, you know, they don't change their menus that much. (laughs) It's just, I don't know, there's a real culture of eating in the home and people share all of their projects, you know, a lot of people garden and they're, a lot of my friends are quite good cooks and, you know, people want to host. Do you think that in the city, people tend to try too hard versus where you live now, where people are just more sort of casual in the way they approach having people over? Well, I don't know if we can really, you know, say for sure, but everybody's different. But I can say that, yes, I think that uh, my friends here, for instance, um, will have others, pe- other people over really at the drop of a hat, you know? that To have friends over for dinner, it's more of a, well, why don't you just stay? Or why don't you come tomorrow night kind of a thing? Not like a party that you might plan for two weeks, you know? Yeah, it makes a big difference. The subtitle of your book company is The Radically Casual Art of Cooking for Others. So what's radical about your way? (laughs) I mean, I think it's that, I think that I'm just trying to stress that you really don't have to be performing the act of food or performing food or, you know, having this kind of performance. I feel like for me, it was really important that I let that go, that idea that I was going to try to impress. And even me, because, you know, as a recipe developer and, you know, my second cookbook, you'd think, you know, people have expectations. But I think in my friends, I've sort of worn that down. (laughs) They know that they're going to be guinea pigs and that something I make is going to be super experimental. So I think I just really want to stress that, you know, it's okay if not every single thing turns out, as long as a few things do, of course. But... I feel like the host's attitude is so important. It's such an important ingredient in any dinner dinner party. Do you tend to want to have everything completely finished by the time people start to arrive? Are you open to people pitching in and helping put last minute touches on and getting things to the table or set up the way you want? Well, I like to make some things ahead because I don't want to stress. You know what I mean? So I definitely do that. But I also, I feel like, having everything done. And if I were to to stand at the counter, everything's done, everything's cleaned and put away, it would feel almost weirdly too formal. Do you know what I mean? So I do leave things to do because it's like, I want, you know, a dinner party with friends should feel like your, your family. And, you know, my mother wouldn't have everything done before I arrived. <laughs> you know, she would still be cooking. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important for both guest and host. You know, I did cook in restaurants and fine dining in New York City for many years. And in the kind of restaurants where there's a lot of a la minute cooking, right? So I feel like as a, as a cook, it's my perfectionism is also a part of this, where I don't want to have so many things done ahead. Some things don't hold up that well. You know what I mean? Like some things you want to go straight from the pot to the plate. 
I don't know, like there's a dish for stir-fried um, peas and their greens. I, you wouldn't want to make that ahead, you know? You want to do that last minute. So let's talk about Thanksgiving. Okay. Because that is the big one that is looming. What would be on your table and what can be done ahead? Well, you know, the menu in this book... Uh, and company is a really turkey-centric, somewhat classical Thanksgiving menu. Because, you know, I, that's how I, I grew up with that kind of a Thanksgiving where my mom, you know, started with the turkey stock two days ahead. And then, you know, we were drying the bread and all that stuff. And I did want to, I wanted this this menu to really reflect that and kind of dial in on the classics and figure out what makes just that, you know, ground pork, sausage, and turkey stuffing, what makes it just a little bit better? So I think I found those things like tossing the cubes with melted butter first and then mixing them all together. For me, that was when I started doing that. That's when my stuffing got really good. (laughs) So I always start with, yes, the stock. I make, you know, I'm going to make the stock two days ahead and dry the bread at the same time. So those are the first two things. And in terms of color, so much autumnal food can be brown, which isn't a bad Mm. thing. The turkey is a big brown thing. But what do you bring to the table that sparks it in terms of color? Oh, this year, I mean, for this menu, I bring, of course, you know, cranberry jelly, a a gelatin that... um, is really lucid and very bright because it has a lot of citrus juice in it. And then, of course, the pie, which is a buttercup squash bourbon pie. Oh, that sounds so good. I mean, I have a salad, baby greens, with little glassy pecans that, you know, you just kind of roll in hot sugar, melted sugar. So there's colors, but it's a brown feast. But this one, I, I do start with crab legs, which are... Of course, bright pink when they first come out of the steamer. Mm, Delicious way to begin. You have a citrusy braised red cabbage that seems like it would be perfect. Yeah, that's in my Christmas menu, but that would be, that dish would be perfect for Thanksgiving. It is um, a red cabbage that's cooked in that sweet and sour style. It's a recipe that I've been tweaking ever since I first started cooking it when I worked at Danube, which was a restaurant in New York City. It's not open any longer. But I cooked for some Austrians. I worked with some Austrians. And they taught me to massage the red cabbage after it's been sliced with a bunch of citrus juice. So it's like orange and lime and lemon. And you salt the cabbage and then you toss it in all the citrus and you kind of rub it in and you let it sit a little bit before you know, braising it with caramelized onions and reduced red wine and port wine. So it gets, it's, it's very bright. It's, it's kind of glowing, actually. You forego mashed potatoes and you opt for a hypnotic alternative. I have to say, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of making these um, this November or maybe just during the season. Tell us about the spiralized roast potatoes. Yeah, so, you know, I have a lot of apple trees and I process a lot of applesauce. And one day my husband came home from the fleet supply store in town 
with a spiralizer that was, you know, used for peeling apples. And it's just kind of an old-fashioned piece of equipment, quite affordable. And so we set it up on the counter, and I just started rolling through them with all the apples. And it takes the peel off, and then it also slices them. So you have this kind of like slinky apple that's peeled, right? Well, that same night, I had some potatoes, and I was going to do like a roast potato. And I thought, well, why am I cutting these up when I have the spiralizer? So I just took the Yukon Gold potato and stuck it on there, and I just spiraled it out. (laughs) And so then I had these potatoes that were like little slinkies that were peeled, and I just came up with a recipe for roasting them so they get all nice and brown and crispy around the edge. It sounds really good, and it sounds like it would be really good baked with those spiralized apples. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, you could. I mean, you can spiralize a lot of things. It could be apples, onions, and potatoes. Ugh, so good. And for your family Christmas, you get a bit more decadent and you make aligot, which I think a lot of people are afraid to make at home. Can you describe what it is and, and the technique? Yes, it's a mashed potato dish, which has lots and lots of shredded cheese added in at the last. And then you keep beating it. And so it turns into kind of an elastic, cheesy potato puree. And the first time I had it, I was in France, actually, with my mom many, many years ago. Uh, we went to this restaurant, uh, Michelin three-star Michel Bra, and it was such a treat for us to go there. And I saw his mother, his own mother was in the dining room, and she was making these potatoes. And so she would walk around, and she was actually, you know, lifting them up in the air. And they, as you beat them and lift them and stretch them, they get more and more elastic. And it's just... It's the most beautiful thing. It's almost like they're kind of alive. They have such muscularity and they're just so delicious with meat of any kind. So delicious. Could you give us um, one of your simple menu ideas for a weeknight that isn't a big holiday per se during the holiday season? Like one of those days where maybe you've been, as you said, just socializing earlier in the day and you ask folks to stay on? The one that comes to mind right away is um, bunt pan chicken with bagna cotta butter. Wow. And my mom's funhouse potatoes, which are like an open-faced baked potato with onion. They're really delicious. Um, Sweet and sour marinated peppers with Swiss chard. And then sopped greens with butter-roasted walnuts. So it's just boiled dinosaur kale with, you know, stovetop, pan-roasted, buttery walnuts. And this menu kicks off with deviled egg dip, which is kind of, it looks like hummus, but it's it's a mostly cooked egg yolk (laughs) with a bunch of seasonings. It's delicious. It's rich. It's such a great idea because you don't have to go to the fuss of stuffing them. Oh, I know. And when I found out that you can just kind of like poach the eggs and then pull them out. You don't even have to shell them. I mean, yeah. That's genius. That is genius born out of having to do that so many times. (laughs) Out of monotony. (laughs) (laughs) You claim to have one and only one party trick and it involves libations. Mm. What is it? Oh, You know, people bring wine and we always have quite a bit of wine and other things to drink around here. But 
I take one bottle of wine and I put it in the back pantry. And I'm just kind of, you know, because sometimes you don't want to have so many bottles out there. It looks a little bit excessive, right? But if by chance we drink all of what, you know, people brought, then I have one extra bottle lurking in the background. I can trot out and I bring it out and there's cheers all around because they're just so happy that I found one more. You know what I mean? (laughs) I love that. What a great cheat. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been so fun to talk to you. Amy Thielen is the James Beard Award-winning author of The New Midwestern Table and the memoir, Give a Girl a Knife. Her latest book is Company, The Radically Casual Art of Cooking for Others. Personally, I would love to have her citrusy braised red cabbage at my Southern California Thanksgiving table. We've got the recipe at kcrw.com slash goodfood. Not to send you into a panic attack, but did you know that Thanksgiving is less than three weeks away? We are here to help as always. On Saturday, November 18th, I'll be joined by cookbook author Nick Sharma to share stories, recipes, and to answer your questions. Are you anxious about the turkey, the pie, don't know what to do about that vegetarian coming to your dinner? Send us questions and we will keep your anxiety at bay, I promise. Email us at goodfood at kcrw.com or DM us on Instagram at KCRW Good Food. In a minute, capers, miso, and salad greens. It's all part of the unexpected pantry of pastry chef Natasha Pickowicz. She shares her baker's vision for more than cake. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Surprising is a word often used to describe Natasha Pickowitz's desserts. The California-born pastry chef has been known for her fresh take on flavor. She pairs nectarines with miso, tops her olive oil cake with fried capers, and cooks down fennel bulbs into jam. Her debut book, More Than Cake, is one we've been looking forward to for a long time. Hi, Natasha. Hi. Your book is just so fascinating and filled with life and unexpected solutions. I really love it. Oh, thank you so much. It's it's just incredible to like be working on something for so long and then finally getting to share it with people. You write that along with nature, art, literature, and music, that both your Chinese and California heritage influence your baking. Where in California did you grow up and and what was the food like at home? Yeah, I I grew up in San Diego, California. Both of my parents teach at UC San Diego. Obviously, there is such an incredible diversity of fruits and vegetables, the seafood um, in Southern California. But, you know, I really grew up with my mom's amazing home cooking and she's from Northern China. She's from Beijing. You know, every single night we ate around the table, me and my parents, you know, having kind of traditional, simple Chinese food. So those are really like the most kind of nostalgic food memories that I have. Yeah. 
You weren't classically trained as a pastry chef. Did not having that formal background give you the space to develop your own style, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I think that it kind of took me a while to get over this, you know, sort of sense of insecurity or not being, you know, sufficient enough in this sort of hyper-competitive fine dining world. I think that that was something that, you know, a lot of people have to deal with, but, you know, a lot of people can't afford to go to culinary school, and that wasn't the path that I ended up doing. But I think that ultimately, it really kind of served my practice and the way that I think about creating dishes and putting together ideas of flavors and textures precisely because I'm an outsider from this kind of formal training. I think it really allowed me to kind of make dishes that feel unique to me and my own kind of point of view and identity. Okay, so let's get to the recipes. The way that you combine flavors is so unique and refreshing. I'd love to just throw out a few ingredients and you tell me how you'd incorporate them into a dessert. Oh, I love this. Okay, so show you. So shoyu to me is like a salt alternative, right? It's like fermented soy. So I think something like shoyu can be used to season baked goods. So it's put it in a peanut butter cookie, you know, season a little fruit with a jam in it at the end. You know, I think anytime you want to add flavor besides just saltiness, that's a great way to add that kind of rich caramelized notes to things. What about fennel seeds? Oh my gosh, one of my all-time favorites. I love black licorice, that fl- that anise seed flavor. Um, you know, it, it's a bit of an acquired taste, but something like fennel seeds in, um, first of all, it's great in savory food, but in sweets, it actually brings out that kind of sugary, sweet notes and is so great with rich flavors like butter um, and eggs. So I love it in, in crunchy, buttery cookies like a biscotti or like a buttery sable cookie. It would be so great and scones, you know, really aromatic seeds like fennel seeds are can bloom in liquid. So, you know, you rub it into sugar, you let it steep in heavy cream and that flavor kind of like unfurls and it's just so delightful um, in pastries. One of my faves. You say that your fennel chocolate hazelnut spears came out of a baking accident. <laughs> yeah. Oh, many. I've had all the baking accidents that you can have. I mean, I think it's just such an important way for us to, you know, observe what's happened, learn from what it was instead of it being a failure. It really is. It's such a cliche, but it is such an opportunity to kind of like learn a little bit more about the baking process and how we're kind of being focused in those moments. But I I was trying to develop a biscotti recipe and, you know, we may all make these mistakes, but I accidentally, you know, when I was scaling down my recipes for the book, I forgot to reduce the amount of butter and sugar. So when I baked it, of course, all that extra moisture meant that the cookie spread so much in the oven. But what I found after I let it cool and I sort of let my anxiety burn off, I realized that it was so hyper. I mean, of course, how could it not be more delicious, all that extra butter and sugar? So I kind of wanted to keep it in there. Also is this sort of symbol of like, sometimes mistakes result in these things that are better than you could have imagined. And I really wanted, you know, the reader to feel comforted by that thought. Love that. 
So, um, you know, I too come from a sort of Italo-centric cooking background and capers, good capers are some of my favorite ingredients. But you, I have to say you use them in a way that I have never been brave enough to do. <laughs> so tell us about your olive oil cake with crispy capers. Yes. So I found that when all of, obviously, you know, we get the capers that are covered in brine. So they're very salty, whether they're salt packed or in a kind of brine solution. But I found that if you kind of pat them dry and you do the quick little fry and some nice olive oil, they actually take on this sweet, floral, nutty element. And they go so great with something like an olive oil cake, which is already a little bit savory in nature. And I'm someone who doesn't love super sweet sweets. I'm always thinking about ways to bring in, you know, sour, salty, bitter, you know, I want, I want a complex kind of like expression of lots of different things. So I fried up those capers and it's sort of like a sprinkle, right? You know, it adds great crunch and texture, but it also adds a little bit something extra. And I think like, you know, you see savory ingredients in, in, sweets used in surprising ways. Maybe it's like a cured olive or, you know, a salty cheese. And I think like if you want to try something that is going to give you a bit of an unexpected savory kick, the, these crispy capers are just such a neat way to kind of like surprise somebody with a beautiful cake. And now let's talk about shizo. Oh my God. Well, I grow, well, I live in Brooklyn and shiso grows like a weed absolutely everywhere. And it's, I grow it in my backyard as well. Um, you know, I think that's something that, again, we're used to seeing it in, you know, Japanese food, like with sashimi, you know, in salads. It's really seen more as like a savory ingredient. But again, it has that incredible, it's sort of like, licorice meets fruit punch. And it's so unbelievable with fruits, with cream, you know, in cakes. And what I love to do to kind of like highlight how special herbs like shiso are is actually candy them. So what I mean by candy is, you know, I kind of let these herbs dry at room temp and they're kind of covered in this egg white, sugar, citric acid mixture. And what ends up happening is they turn into crisp chips and they taste exactly like Sour Patch Kids, that kind of gummy, tangy candy. And I'll I'll make a bunch of them. They're so pretty. They're great kind of crunched over a scoop of ice cream, you know, scattered on a panna cotta, decorating a layer cake. You know, I, I think, again, this is a way to create beautiful garnishes that are coming from natural plants rather than buying kind of like an artificial decor from the store. It's just a way for us to reconsider herbs and plants we're seeing around us to kind of enhance our bakes. I love how you break rules with your cake decorations. Um, the photograph of the olive oil mascarpone and fennel layer cake, for example, is just beautiful how it's topped, not with flowers, but with open cups of lettuce and chicory leaves. Yeah. What advice can you give us on decorating our cakes? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It is seen as such a craft that you're seeing in bakeries and in, with fancy pastry chefs, you know, on wedding cakes. I really wanted to show how I do things, which I feel like is really kind of pulling from your own resources and what you have available. So, you know, literally I'm opening up my refrigerator and I'm like, oh, I have a head of radicchio. To my mind, 
I would rather open up that head of radicchio and use those beautiful kind of scarlet variegated leaves to decorate my cake than, you know, a rose from the bodega that's been sprayed with pesticides. Like it makes me feel better to put that on my cake instead. And I think, again, it's about subverting our expectations around what we think a layer cake should be. It's giving us the same kind of romance and texture and seduction, but with a completely different ingredient. So I think that these are the kind of surprising touches that are so easy for us to do at home that like will surprise and wow people when you bring a cake over and people will be like, wow, I never thought of that before. And I think that's how we create those show-stopping moments that like, you know, bring us together with the people around us. I'm so glad we had this conversation. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. That was Natasha Pickowicz. We've been talking about her book, More Than Cake, 100 Baking Recipes Built for Pleasure and Community. Check out a recipe for her buttery chocolate, hazelnut, and fennel spears on our website. You know the link. It's kcrw.com slash goodfood. It's pumpkin season, and we've got some recipe inspiration for you on the Market Report next. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Whether or not the weather is actually turning, I am finally ready for some comforting soups and stews. Let's head to the farmer's market now, where Jillian Ferguson is on the hunt for fall flavors. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. We are firmly in winter squash season here at the market. There's almost a chill in the air this morning in Santa Monica. I'm happy to be talking to Debbie Lee, who is four weeks into her Silver Lake pop-up, Joseon. It's a modern Korean tasting menu. And Debbie, I am eager to learn what you're doing with all this squash that's showing up at the market. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm great. It is so wonderful to see you. I see you here every single week at the market since you started this (laughs) pop-up. Tell us about Joseon. What does the name mean and what's the concept? So Joseon is actually the name of the last dynasty that was in Korea. So it also was the original name of Korea. So being a northern Korean, I got to keep it real, right? So um, I thought it was apropos to name it Joseon because uh, the menu is based upon how the royal king and the family would eat. So it's my modern interpretation of royal court dining. Love that. Okay, so let's talk about winter squash. How are you using it on your menu? So at Joseon, your first course that you start with us is actually juke, which is a porridge. And traditionally during pumpkin season, um, a.k.a. kabocha squash season, we use kabocha squash to make a porridge. Um, So it's actually, there is no actual granules of rice. We bind it with a little sweet glutinous rice flour. But it's all about the kabocha. Describe the texture of that. Think of like a little thicker of a butternut squash soup, a little more savory. There's some Korean leeks. We make our own vegetable broth. Um, We steam the squash, then we puree it, cook it down along with the broth, add a little kombu for finishing. And then, you know, we do a little, uh, you know, jazing to it. We add a little chive oil, some daikon sprouts, some crispy rice, and of course, my jujube romesco. 
Okay, what is a jujube romesco? So it is my Korean take on a romesco. The base of it is the same in the sense I take peppers, onions, some heirloom tomatoes from Tutti Frutti Farms, and then we add some bread. However, the take is that I also roast because right now it's jujube season. It's the first fruit I had in Korea when I was a child when I came to Korea. So it's very, very uh, memorable for me. So I take the jujubes and I roast them along with the peppers and the onions and the tomatoes, puree that, add some pine nuts instead of walnuts, and there you go. You got a Korean jujube romesco. God, I love that. So I've never roasted a jujube before. What's that flavor like? So when you roast it, it actually doesn't get super sweet as people may think. There is a, a um, it sort of takes the tart out of it because if you were to eat the jujube fresh, you're going to get almost that apple-like tartness from it, right, when you take that first bite. But when you roast it, it sort of takes that tartness away, and then you get this mellow flavor of sweet, and it goes really well with the basis of the romesco. Mm, I bet. So Debbie, when I think about winter squash, I just can't help but think about Thanksgiving. Would this kabocha squash juke be something that you could eat alongside a Thanksgiving meal? Oh, absolutely. It's a side that you can buy with our soulful sides for our yicha. Ah, there you go. <laughs> okay, tell us more about that. So basically, we are doing my Koreanish take on a Thanksgiving. So we're going to have a choice of bosam, uh, which is a.k.a. pork belly, or you can have a tenjang brined Laban Ranch turkey. There's a bunch of different sides from Weiser Farms, uh, Hasselback Honey Nut with my version of a Priya Gremolata. Um, so I'm some, sort of playing up with it. But of course, I like to start with soup at the table, so why not start with the juke? How awesome. And how can people order this Thanksgiving menu? They can go to yichala.com and go order it online right now. Perfect. Thank you so much, Debbie. You're welcome. That was Debbie Lee. Right now you can find her cooking at Josun on Thursday through Saturday nights in Silver Lake in the old Kausita space. She's also offering a Korean-inspired Thanksgiving takeout menu. Orders must be placed by November 17th. We've got links for everything we talked about on our website at kcrw.com slash goodfood. Paul Thurston of Lauerbacher Farms up in Camarillo brings a number of different squash to the market this time of year. And Paul, farmers market shoppers will be familiar, I think, with the kabocha squash that Debbie was just talking about. But you bring these other varieties that are really cool looking. Let's just go down the line here and talk about each one. This first one kind of looks like a butternut that went to like Willy Wonka's factory or something. What What is this? Yeah, that is a Tahitian squash. Yeah, they have a nice long neck, uh, which is solid. So you get a lot of, a lot of meat out of that in a small uh, seed pod. And you don't have to, you can cut a little piece off the end of the uh, neck and it seals itself. You don't have to... Uh, use it all at one time. You can cut pieces off. Which is so great because they are quite large. So if you have a small family, you can just take what you need. Exactly, yeah. Okay, and then right next to it, we have this just very picturesque orange squash. It looks like it could be out of a still life. What's this? This is a Musk de Provence. And uh, it's also uh, known as a Cinderella pumpkin. It's got a pretty good amount of moisture in it. Mostly it's the chefs that use them because they're so big. They average 12, 15 pounds up to 30, 35. And they make use them for um, pasta, pasta dishes, and uh, soup. And I love that it's called a Cinderella pumpkin. It really does look like the perfect shaped pumpkin that her carriage is made out of. If someone did take this home, could you just put the whole thing in the oven? How would you roast something like this? Yeah, you sure can. They, that's, uh, that's what they do. They just You can roast it whole or cut it in half and do two halves. 
roasted uh, so the open side is down okay. and it drains uh, a lot of the moisture comes out and you just gives you your meats a little more ha- handy handleable I guess is the word and right next to the Cinderella pumpkin is this greenish blue winter squash that is also quite large what's this one this is the Marina de Chioga it's uh, yeah it's very got a nice color to it it's a got a purplish uh, bluish hue gray green it's a little bit drier than than the uh, Must de Provence and uh, makes great pies. That's what uh, I see the restaurants doing with this pumpkin. They they average uh, in weight, oh, 9, 10 pounds up to 15, maybe 20 sometimes. And yeah, they also I make a nice uh, cheesecake. That's a great baker. And they're also beautiful. I mean, they really do look like a still life painting sitting here on your table. If we leave these on our dining room table just to enjoy them, will they last for a few months? Uh, sure enough, yeah, they'll last for months. I usually end up selling them all before they go bad. And that's, you know, all the way into February. So, yeah, yeah, you can put them on your kitchen table or make a little pumpkin, uh, Cinderella, <laughs> pump, put some wheels on it and pull it around, yeah. <laughs> That was Paul Thurston. You can find him behind the table at Lauerbeck Farm Stand every Wednesday at the downtown Santa Monica Farmer's Market and also on Saturdays at the Pico Farmer's Market. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Rush. And a special thanks to Laura Kondarajan and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. Don't forget to email me or DM me your Thanksgiving questions. Our email is goodfood at kcrw.com. And on Instagram, we are at kcrwgoodfood. I'll be back next week with an all new episode of Good Food. <laughs>